0: in key leadership slots from everywhere from handling our finances when he first came on as our accountant. Now he's uh, in an executive pastor role serving our church in a variety of ways. He's been doing that for over a decade, all those different things. And there's a table out in the lobby with an opportunity for you to drop in an expression. Staff in key leadership slots from everywhere from handling our finances when he first came on as our accountant. Now he's uh, in an executive pastor role, serving our church in a variety of ways. He's been doing that for over a half in key leadership slots from everywhere, from handling our finances when he first came on as our accountant today. It goes like this. Uh, three friends decided to go deer hunting together. A lawyer, a doctor, and of course, a preacher. Right? As they were walking along, along comes a big buck. The three of them sh- in key leadership Slots from everywhere from handling our finances when he first came on as our account. Staff in key leadership slots from everywhere from handling our finances when he first came on as our account. And a vigorous debate is going on and along comes a game officer and he says, gentlemen, what's the problem? I said, well, one of us shot this beautiful buck. We cannot tell which one it was. And he bends down and examines the creature and he says, uh, with much confidence, the preacher shot the buck. And uh, they all wonder how he knew that. And he said, uh, "Easy, the bullet went in one ear and out the other. Yeah. Ha-ha. I get it, right? Nobody listens to the preacher. Very, very, very funny. Um, but what if it's true? What if it's true that nobody listens, really listens, the way, Jesus, the way Jesus meant we should listen when he said, let those who have ears to hear, hear? What if nobody listens to the Word of God like that when it's preached in a way that, that it matters when they leave? See, that would no longer be funny. That would be revealing. But before we think about that any further, it's good to ask at this point, is that true of you? Does that describe you? When was the last time you heard the word preached here in this room or maybe on the radio or even at the chapel down the street? You read it in your quiet mornings around your kitchen table and it stopped you, and it redirected you, and you obeyed. You did something different that day because of what you had heard or read in Scripture. Now, I said that the answer to that question is, is really revealing. Do you want to know what it reveals? Are you sure you want to know what it reveals? Because it penetrates down to the very heart of our faith. It diagnoses us in a way that may not be the happiest of diagnoses. See, how you answer that question do you practice the Bible? Not do you read the Bible, not do you believe the Bible, but do you practice the Bible? Do you obey the commands of Jesus? May be one of the most important questions you'll ever ask. At least, That seems to be what Jesus thinks about it. In John 14, the story unfolds there. It's the night before the cross. It's the night that Jesus was betrayed. We call it Maundy Thursday on the church calendar. And it it is part of what's known as the upper room or the farewell discourse of Jesus with His disciples, His last teaching to them before the cross. He is only hours away from the cross at this time. And at this crucial time of teaching His disciples, Jesus addresses our question. He doesn't address it just once, but again and again and again and again. This is what Jesus says. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then, just a couple of sentences later, whoever has my commandments and keeps them he it is who loves me. And then, just a verse or two later, Jesus answered him, "If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And yet again, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. See, Jesus is saying to us that this is how we love God back by our obedience. He said, as he said elsewhere, Loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that's the most important thing in the world. What does it mean then when we don't obey? Jesus says it means that our love has been diluted or that it has been displaced if we have even loved God at all. So it's a very revealing question. It's a very penetrating question. Are you regularly in the practice of obeying the teaching of Scripture, the commands of Jesus? We could put it this way. Are you loving Him back? And so if you'll open your Bibles to John chapter 14, we'll be spending our time in just a little section of 10 or so verses there this morning, and only about four of those in, in more focus. But I'd like to pray as, as we look at that together. Would you bow with me, please? Father, we ask for Your kindness to us now, that You might, by Your Word and Your Spirit, um, show us how we are to love You. Give us ears to hear. Help us to hear, not only hear, but to carry it with us um, out of this room and all this week. May it shape and touch every area of our lives by Your grace. Come, Spirit, do this good work in us. We invite You now in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> on, our, on our website, there's uh, a number of Lenten devotionals that are really outstanding that we've posted there. One of them is called the Lent Project, and it addresses our question this morning this way. It says, It um, it's been suggested that the most important questions you must answer during your lifetime are two. First, do you really believe that Jesus loves you? Do you really believe that Jesus loves you? And the second is, do you love Him back? Do you love Him back? And we have so far this year as a church family on Sunday mornings during this teaching time, we've been pressing in on that first question. Um, as we walk through those three circles that describe the kind of people we want to be in our mission statement, people who love God and love the church and love their neighbors well, we are focusing on that first circle as we start the year, um, loving God. And we started by, by reflecting on how lovable our God is, not like Oh, isn't he cute? Kind of lovable, but how good and right and desirable is it for us to love our God? And we saw that, that He is our Maker, and He is our Redeemer, and He is our Father. And then, then we've looked at um, how it is that He loves us. And we saw as we looked through scriptures in recent weeks um, that He loves us sacrificially. First John 3, we looked at it, says, By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. He loves us sacrificially. And then Carson taught us um, that God loves us unfailingly from Romans 8. It says, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then just a couple of weeks ago, we saw that He loves us undeservedly, and we looked at the story of Hosea and his love by God's instruction to an unfaithful wife, Gomer. As the Lord says to Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. See, this is the first great question. Do you really believe that God loves you? Do you really believe that God loves you? And honestly, everything else that we're teaching this year builds on that question. Okay? Your ability to answer that question affirmatively. Do you really believe that when Paul writes that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us? Do you believe that that's true and that it's true for you? Okay, This is the question that must be settled before we can move on. And if that if that gives you pause, then go back and review. All those sermons are online. Review the scriptures that were taught. Um, go for a long walk in the woods. Buy a, buy a large Trenta-sized Starbucks coffee, a cup of coffee and contemplate it. Trenta is coming out this summer. It's 31 ounces of coffee, right? One and a half times as big as what was it, the, the the vente? Sit with somebody you respect and trust that you think really gets this. And let them pray for you and encourage you. But you need to be honest about this. Do you really believe that God loves you? Do you get it in a way that it affects you? Because everything hinges on this question. And then once you answer that question with a yes, yes, I believe God loves me. I believe he loves me sacrificially, unfailingly, undeservedly, and in every other good and perfect way. I believe I am the beloved of God. And I believe he demonstrated it without question on the cross in the sacrificial death of his son for the sins of the world, even for my sins. And when you believe that, the next question just comes up automatically. If I've been loved like that, how do I love him back? Right? Ladies, think this through with me. Imagine with me you have a suitor, a beau, okay? And he loves you, and he is generous, and he is thoughtful, and he is kind. Like I said, imagine, ladies, imagine with me this morning. Okay? Even on your bad days, okay? Even on the days when you're less than lovable, when you're on your grumpy, grouchy days, He is even more thoughtful, more caring, more generous, more loving, even on those days. His love for you has been demonstrated beyond question. And then, his birthday comes up. What are you thinking? How can I show him my love? What is a gift? What's the gift that I could give him that he would really enjoy? What's his love languages? Would he, would he love a spree down at Dick's Sporting Goods? Or is he a Marvel Barnes and Nobles guy? Does he want to go for a long walk on the beach? Cane's tickets? Skydiving? I mean, that question... Is just what you naturally would ask, right? Makes me wonder what Gomer got Hosea for his birthday after he loved her through all her infidelities. See, once we are convinced of the sacrificial, unfailing, wholly undeserved love of God for us, the question just automatically becomes how do I love him back? How do, I, how do I love him back? Um, and this is Jesus' answer over and over and over and over again in a span of just about 10 verses. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Okay. That's how we love God back. Some, some have suggested this is God's love language. Okay. It's the shape love takes to God. Now, back in 2003, there's a guy named John McCaslin. He was writing for the Washington Times. He tells a story about uh, the then First Lady Laura Bush. She's recalling an overnight visit with her husband, George W. Bush, in the home of his parents, the former president, and Mrs. G.W.H., whatever it is, Bush, right? The Bush has always confused me because of that. So you, but you, you're tracking with me. We got the younger President Bush in his dad's home with his wife, Um, and his mom, she says, she writes, she says, George, the president, woke up at 6 a.m. as usual, went downstairs to get a cup of coffee, and Laura says, he sat down on the sofa with his parents and put his feet up, and all of a sudden, his mom, Barbara, yells, get your feet down, (laughs) to which his dad, the former president, replies, for goodness sake, Barbara, he's the president of the United States. And Barbara says, his mom says, I don't care. I don't want his feet on my table. And so the president did promptly as he was told. As his wife, Laura Bush, observes, even presidents have to listen to their mothers. Okay? Um, Kids, listen to that. Even presidents have to listen to their mothers. All right? It's an important, important truth. Why do you think President Bush obeyed his mom? I suppose there's an element of self-preservation that's involved, right? Uh, and your wisdom mixed with fear. If mama ain't happy, right? Ain't nobody happy kind of, kind of thinking. But I would imagine that supremely the president obeyed his mom because he loved her that sons obey their mothers and their fathers because of love. When the Bible says, to children, honor your father and mother, it's the shape that love is to take from children to their parents. And so it's the shape that our love is to take for our Heavenly Father, the one who loves us so. It's how we love Him back. You know, when you read these, few verses here, back to back to back to back. It sounds almost more than that. It sounds almost essential that we love him that way. Especially, listen to when Jesus says it again, just a couple verses later in verse 21. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. It sounds like Jesus is saying, this is the necessary mark of someone who loves me. They obey my commands. And you get a sense that anyone without that mark really doesn't love him, no matter what they might protest. Now, not that it's an all-or-nothing proposition that you always obey Jesus or you never loved him, but I think Jesus is pointing out that there's a necessary correspondence here. The more we love, the more we obey. And if my love for Jesus is on the increase, so will my obedience be. But if my obedience should lag, that would be sure evidence of the direction of my love. So Jesus says, this is the mark of one who loves me. She obeys my commands. So it's interesting to think what this means. It means um, you could have a master's degree in theology. You could have a doctorate in theology. And not love God. If you don't obey Him, you could uh, you could be a pastor or a full professor. You could uh, win all the Bible drills in your Awana club, and uh, and not love God. You can know a lot, and not be loving Jesus back, unless you are obeying His commands. And don't don't miss it. We are definitely loving him back, right? We love him. John's going to write later. We love him because he loved us first. So our I would say our glad obedience is how we love God back. Um, because our obedience, it's more than just. Um, Begrudging submission, or it's more than just a servile compliance. It is our glad obedience. It is an expression of our love. Think about this uh, example. Um, see if it helps you. Um, <clears throat> any, of your, any of you ever bought camera equipment from BH Photo? They are, uh, it's a fascinating story. They're located on Ninth Avenue, New York City. It's the largest non-chain photo and video equipment store in the United States, second largest in the world. There's one in Tokyo, evidently it's bigger. And um, the owners, along with many of their employees, are Hasidic Jews who dress just as their 18th century ancestors did in Eastern Europe. So you've got these Hasidic Jews running a high-tech photo store. Fascinating imagery. Um, on any given day, eight to 9,000 people pass through the front door of this place, yet 70, that's only 30% of their business, 70% of their business is online. Now, even in such a competitive marketplace, B&H won't conduct business on the Sabbath or on about half a dozen Jewish holidays during the year. They close their doors at 1 p.m. on Fridays and keep them closed all day Saturday, the biggest shopping day of the week. During Sabbath, customers can peruse the BH website, the article says, but they can't make an online order. Okay? So this is kind of like the Jewish Chick-fil-A. All right? <laughs> that's, that's what we're talking about. So recently a customer asked the BH Director of Communications how they could close not just the retail store, but also the website on, think this through with me, Sabbath starts at one o'clock on Friday, on Black Friday. They're closed. And the director simply replied, we respond to a higher authority. And I would want to say, as Christians, we we could say that too, we would say that. If if this was our conviction, we would say the same thing. But I would want to think we would say something more. I think we need to add a phrase than just we respond to a higher authority. Um, See. As Christ followers, as Christians, as those who love Jesus, those are synonymous terms. If you're a Christian, you are a Christ follower, you love Jesus. They mean the same thing. For us, we would need to add a phrase to this story. We would need to add not just that we respond to a higher authority, but we would also add, we have a greater love. We have a greater love. And that's why we obey. Now, admittedly, all this obedience language can start to sound not so loving after a while and can start to seem downright burdensome if right at the heart of the Christian life is obeying commands. Um, And John anticipated that. And in his letter that he wrote later in 1 John, He addresses this very specific, same topic. Listen to it, 1 John 5. He says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Exactly what he's quoting Jesus there. And then he says, and by the way, his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. Not that, I'll talk more about this in a minute. It's not that the commandments are easy. It's not that they're not challenging or difficult, but that it is so worth it. Look with me at the entirety of verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. So Jesus promises us here that our loving obedience to his commands draws us into the love of the Father in a really unique way. Dale Bruner helped me think about this. He says, the simple Christian is already, of course, by definition, loved by the Father. The promise here, therefore, must mean that this Christian will experience the Father's love in some mysteriously fresh ways, that we will experience the love of the Father greater and greater and greater as we obey in love. When we love Jesus by our glad obedience to his commands, we experience the love of the Father in life-changing ways. And if that's not enough, Jesus says, I will love him too, and I'm going to show myself to him. So here you get the sense we are being invited into the love of the Trinity to experience it increasingly, personally, richly, transformingly as a result of our loving obedience to the commands of Christ. Jesus talks about this in John 17. He says, as he's praying for his disciples to the Father, he says, Father, I have made known to them your name, to my disciples your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me, Father, may be in them. See, as we love Jesus and express our love to Him by our obedience, we are drawn deeper into the love of the Father and the Son, though we are always loved. Helps to think of it, I think, to think of it like the way a family works, okay? I have five kids. Three of them are sons. My youngest son is Josiah, and um, my biggest son probably is Josiah, too. And he is my son, Nothing can change that, okay? He will always be my son. Call that our union as father and son, always. He will be my son, and I will be his father. But the closeness of our relationship, let's call that our communion, varies, right? Now, should my son take my truck without permission and go on a joyride with six of his friends in the back and some open containers in the front, the fact that he is 15 and does not have his permit would not... Would not this, this is stressing the communion a little bit, right? Okay. Especially where I had to find out about it from uniformed officers. This would stress our union would still be in, in place, but our communion would be strained. Um, now, this, you need to know, is a hypo- hypothetical event, And I made plain in the first service when Josiah was attending that I trust that it will always stay that way. (laughs) See, this is the way it is with Christ. This is the way it is with our Father. Once we are adopted into His family as His son or daughter by faith, that union is fixed. We will always be His son. We will always be His daughter. But our communion varies in correspondence with our obedience. And Jesus here is inviting us to experience the love of the Father and the Son by means of the Spirit in a deeper and deeper way as we lovingly, gladly obey His commands. You get to know God. As you obey God, you get to know God in ways that you otherwise would not really know Him, the Father and the Son. Now, in the next verse, verse 22, no surprise, one of the disciples is struggling with all this, and I don't have time to deal with this question, but I want to look at Jesus' answer because Jesus basically says the same thing again. So, verse 22 is a question. We skip to verse 23, and Jesus answers. He says, look, if anyone loves me... He will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And Jesus is saying, yet again, our glad obedience is how we love him back, again and again and now again, Jesus is pressing us with the importance of this. And then, though... He virtually repeats the same ideas, the same enticing ideas that he just said about why this is such a good and beautiful and desirable thing. My Father will love him and, my, and he, we will come to him and make our home with him. When you obey the commands of God, the Father comes to you. The Father and the Son come to you and they make their home with you. This is the language of intimacy, right? They're dwelling with you. They are always with you. Dale Bruner says, admittedly, he says, the exact location of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in our daily lives is not clear to me, except that they are in some some miraculous way near to us. He says, perhaps in some unseen fifth dimension, making their homes from above with and beside and even in us. That's pretty cool. In response to our loving obedience, God the Father and God the Son increasingly make their home in us. Our obedience enriches our experience of that communion all the more. And this is why John can say those commandments are not burdensome because the return is so over-the-top, beyond worth it. Okay? The Commands of God can be really, really hard. But when the Father and the Son come to us and make their home in us and draw near to us in that way, even the hardest of obediences is is worth it. It's always worth it. John says, it's not burdensome. Now, Jesus is still not done with pressing us with this idea that our obedience is the way we love Him back. He's going to say it once more in this little section, only this time he kind of says it backwards in a sense. The very next verse, verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. He adds that statement. It's as though Jesus is saying, I am not making this up. Okay, This is the Father's Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So Jesus is kind of saying the same thing inside out. He's saying that our disobedience is a demonstration that we do not love. He is saying that our our disobedience is an expression of non-love. As Ellie Wiesel put it, um, it's an act of indifference towards God. And every time we disobey Jesus, we are evidencing that we do not care about Him, we do not love Him, at least not supremely, and definitely not at that moment, not more than what we're about to undertake. We are loving someone or something more. Someone's opinion of us, something that we want to acquire, a place we want to occupy, an honor we want to be lauded with, a pleasure we want to enjoy. Every time we follow a desire outside of Jesus' commands, Every time we do that, outside the will of God for us, we are declaring that we really don't love Jesus, at least not all that much. We are saying we love him less than our porn, we love him less than our lovers, we love him less than our accolades, we love him less than our stuff. You could probably, if you're being honest, you could fill in the blank. Jesus, I love you less than, and put in your disobedience. That's what you are saying. What do we do when this condition describes our hearts? And I don't think the core of the answer is to try harder to obey. I don't think that really gets at the heart of it. There's a place in the Christian life for trying really hard, but it's not at the core of things. It's not the first thing. Because what this condition tells us is that first, that our love has grown cold, that we have drifted away from the love God has for us, and we've stopped loving Him back. In an example of really wise parenting, Erwin McManus helps us think about this when he tells a story about his son, Aaron. He said, Aaron was five or six when he started asking me, 'What, what does God's voice sound like? He said, I didn't know how to answer. He says, a few years later, Aaron went off to his first junior high camp, and in the middle of the week, I went up with another pastor at our church to see our kids. And uh, Aaron, I learned when I got there, had started to assault another kid, but had been held back by his friends. He was unrepentant, wanted to leave camp, pulled together his stuff, and shoved it into the car. Erwin says, I, I asked him for a last talk with me before we drove away, and so we sat on two large rocks in the middle of the woods, and he said, I asked him, Aaron, is there any voice inside you telling you what you should do? Mm-hmm. Yes, he nodded. What's the voice telling you? That I should stay and work it out. Can you identify that voice? Yes, it's God. And Erwin said, it's the moment I'd waited for. And he said, Aaron, do you realize what just happened? You heard God's voice. He spoke to you. And forget everything else that's happened. God spoke to you, and you were able to recognize him. He says, I'll never forget Aaron's response. He said, well, I'm still not going to do what God said. (laughs) He says, so, and this I thought was really wise. He said, I explained to him that that was his choice but that this is what would happen, where that choice would lead. He said if he rejected the voice of God and chose to disobey his guidance, his heart would become hardened and his ears would become dull. If he continued on this path, there would be a day when he would never again hear the voice of God. There would come a day when he would deny that God even speaks or has ever spoken to him. But if he treasures God's voice, however it comes to him, through the Scriptures, through his conscience, and responds to him with obedience, then his heart would be softened and his ears would always be able to hear the whisper of God into his life. And Aaron chose to stay. He says, I was very grateful. Because if he'd chosen differently, he says, it would have begun the path toward nominal discipleship. He says, perhaps he would never have rejected the faith overtly. He might even have chosen to be a faithful attender at a church and been by everyone else's estimation to be a good man, but he would no longer be a close follower of Jesus. And so the first thing when our heart is cold is we must repent, not not first of even the specific act, but of a greater sin, that we have let our love grow cold. And the one who has loved us so we have failed to love back. We have been like Gomer. We have been unfaithful. We do not want to obey. We confess that, and then we repent of the lesser evidences that our disobedience in particular has taken, whatever shape our unfaithfulness has taken. And having repented, then we have to restock the fuel. We have to go back. We have to go back to the depth of the love of God for us, and that means returning to the Scriptures and remembering the sacrificial, unflagging, wholly undeserved love of God for us, even in this moment, even in our waywardness, He still loves us. There are other things that help. God's people can help. Going for a walk in creation and marveling that the creation love, the Creator loves you can help. Remembering God's faithful love in the past can help, but the most sure. The best revelation of God's love for us is in these scriptures because Jesus said you must have his commandments and keep them, you must have them. And then having repented of our sin of lovelessness and then having refueled our our connection with God's love for us, then we are ready to redouble our efforts to obey, and even that independence upon God and His Spirit. So, let's go back to those two all-important questions. Do you know, do you really know that God loves you? You can, you know. This room is, is chock full of people who have welcomed the love of God even for them, even though they don't deserve it. And that is where you have to welcome the love of God from, from the place of the undeserving. You have to recognize that Jesus died for the undeserving, for sinners like you and like me, to carry the penalty of our sins on the cross so that by faith in that good work, we could be adopted into God's family as His sons and His daughters. You can do that today. As those who already believed come to the table and remember God's love for them, you can embrace it right in your seat by simply acknowledging your sin and your need and recognizing in faith that Christ was the great demonstration of the love of God on the cross as He died for your sins. You can do that. You can answer that first question, yes, I believe, today. How about that second question? Are you loving Him back? We love Him by our glad obedience. Is there an area of disobedience that you are loving more than you are loving Christ? You're clinging to it. You're holding on to it. You're treasuring it by that means. C.S. Lewis said, God cannot bless us unless He has us. When we try to keep within us an area that is our own, we try to keep an area of death. Therefore, in love, He claims all. There's no bargaining with Him. And so, as you come to the table today, let me invite you, lay aside that disobedience. Lay aside that unbelief. Confess it and ask for grace to walk in God's love for you afresh, and to love Him back with this act of obedience. It's always a good preparation for the table to pray the simple prayer from Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked or grievous way in me, and lead me in your way everlasting. And then come to the table. Let it be for you an act of love, Because it's an act of obedience. Because we remember that on the night on which He was betrayed, the night that we are reading from, that Thursday night, Jesus took bread and He broke it. And He commanded us. He said, do this in remembrance of Me. This is My body, which is broken for you. And in the same way, after the meal, He took the cup And he said, this is the new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Do this also in remembrance of me. Would you bow with me in prayer, please?